Hello everyone and welcome to the Cricket Podcast. I'm Jack Hope. Once again, I'm joined by Max Ray Brown. How are you, Max? Yeah, very well, thank you. Good. And stepping into the shoes of Dan Norcross, Ross Legg, how are you? I'm wearing a less flamboyant shirt than Dan did last week, but I'm feeling great. Excellent. Uh, On this week's show, we'll be talking about the very limited amount of cricket we saw in the second England v Pakistan test. We'll have a look forward to the final test of the English summer. Dhoni's retired, so Ross will be talking about that. And we've got Dan Weston on to talk about uh, cricket analytics. He's the head of data insights for the Birmingham Phoenix. and We've got a really interesting chat. Um, about what cricket cricket analytics is and and how it's applied in the game at the moment. Um, Before we start with all that, though, uh, my question to you boys is, um, what is your favourite way to pass the time during a rain delay? Well, I think for me, it has to be a good old-fashioned game of changing room cricket, doesn't it? Not at the moment, not allowed in the changing rooms. Well, in a a (laughs) non-Covid world... You could also do it on the uh, on the sort of the the bit outside that's covered by a roof, maybe if you've got one of those at your ground. Get the bin out, everyone everyone round the round the bat. No aggressive shots. So, in, so interestingly, so interesting, we actually did that on Saturday. So when it started raining, we were just we've only had say fifteen overs. So we had we had slip cordon. They call it death cricket. I'm not sure it should be called death cricket, but uh, it was good fun. Um, Max, question for you though: What did you used to do in changing room cricket? Have you got like the Murali bowling action and can absolutely rag it? Oh, the little flick at the back of the hand. No, I'm afraid not. I'd, I'd, uh, I'd usually just try and bore everyone to death with the bat. <laughs> oh right, so your so your changing room technique is exactly the same as your batting technique in normal game. life. Well, I change a winning formula. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, if you want to average twenty. Um, Ross, what, uh, what... Uh, actually, I think for uh, I don't like cricket club, I average seventy-five. <laughs> what an achievement! Um... <laughs> <laughs> Ross, what's um, what's your favourite way to pass time? Um, so I would agree with the old uh, changing room cricket, but I actually used to love playing cards. So actually, there used to be a bit where we just used to sit and play cards for hours, and there'd be for some reason the Sussex League people are always loathe to call it off. They'd, or you'd you'd end up waiting like two hours round. You just lose your afternoon, so you might as well play poker. Um, I, I, I think I, I'm, I'm partial to a game of cards. Get a pizza in, drink loads of beer, gamble. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, before we get on with the rest of the show, Ross, do you want to remind people what they need to do? Yep, they need to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. They need to follow us, or whether it's Stitcher or on Spotify. Um, it'd be great if you could follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at the Cricket Pod. Um, and we leave us a review. That's what we love. If you can uh, compliment Max in any which way, we will read out on the show. <laughs> uh, and definitely remember to tell a friend. We've had some good guests on, not only today with Dan uh, and the Cricket Analytics. We had Dan Norcross on, so that's two Dans in, in two weeks. Uh, we had Tremlett on the week before that, David Gower, Jack Russell. It's, it's, a, it's a murderer's row of people you'd want to talk about <laughs> cricket. Um, so, so go back and listen to some of our back catalogue. Uh, we're going to take a quick break play a jingle, and then we'll be talking about England v Pakistan. Six 
The second England v Pakistan test uh, has ended in a draw. Frankly, it's barely worth summarising the game because you can hardly call it a match. Uh, But here's what happened if you need a reminder. England bowled first and bowled pretty well. Uh, Pakistan, bearing in mind the conditions, also batted okay. They scored 230 uh, and then it rained. And then it didn't really stop raining. (laughs) (laughs) For some reason, they decided to play a little bit on Monday afternoon. Uh, for, for no obvious reason. Uh, I'm going to ask you too quickly, um, because there's not really anything to talk about. If you were going to award um, victory to someone on a, on a moral basis, who, who, who wins? Max. Um, I'm going to give it to James Anderson. So not or, even uh, a team? You're just not even it to a team, a no. Just okay. James Anderson for coming back and bowling well and sticking it up the critics. Okay, uh, Ross? Was he, on the James Anderson point, wasn't he like a couple of miles an hour faster as well? He was bowling like eighty, bowling a couple of balls like eighty-eight yeah, miles an hour. I've seen a few on the speed gun clock at eighty-seven, but after um, after Lords last year, where Archer was bowling it at like nine thousand, I'm sort of loath to believe them anymore. Maybe he's angry, James Anderson. Like maybe that's maybe that's how we we, we roll back the years by making him angry. Yeah, well, I think I think the big winner out of this, and it's not it's not going to be a team because I'm not going to I'm going to follow Max, and it's. Um, I don't even know his name. It's the, well, who's the guy they selected with the weirdest stance of the um, oh Fawad Alam summer so far? Fawad Alam. Yeah, so, yeah he, he's he's guaranteed to score hundred against the next game, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> they give him another chance. <laughs> I mean, imagine that if you waited what is it a decade to play Test cricket, you got a four ball duck and then just sat there at Southampton in your hotel room thinking about it. There's no. That's <laughs> yeah, all he's been dreaming for for the last eleven years is playing that one more game. Yeah, and then if he gets dropped, that's it. He's never going to play again. So he'll have played in the worst Test match of all time and got no runs in it. Yeah, and taken a load of stick for his backstop. Uh, I, I I can't even really award points to anyone for that. I I tell you who who did did do well. Uh, Mohammad Rizwan batted pretty well, and um, people. Yeah. T- Say he's a good wicketkeeper. Did miss a stumping, but uh, yeah. Um, what did you think of Pakistan's batting performance? Because that really is the only. We've got one in to talk about here, so we'll have to string it out for a couple more minutes. Um, yeah, I think they did pretty well, to be honest. I mean, it was pretty dark. It was uh, doing a bit, and they uh, they battled through really well. I think, um, yeah, in really testing conditions. And I, if England had had to bat in similar circumstances, I I don't think they'd have done better against Pakistan's attack. Yeah. Uh, Ross? Uh, well, England did help them quite a bit. We dropped, what, three or four catches in the opening, what, two oh, sessions? Yeah, that, was, that is true, I forgot. Oh, yeah, yeah. to be fair, they could have been about 20 for five, couldn't they? <laughs> yeah, so there is that bit where you just, oh, they did really well. Yeah, because they all got a fucking second life. I also thought um, they were slightly let off the hook when they were eight, nine down, and um, England did that thing where they just sort of let the good batsman score as many runs as he wants. Yeah, he could risk one. Here's his, his 75 that you can go and hit. That's where Root's captaincy at the moment is still, at least still leaves a lot to be desired. He's clearly got the backing of the players, um, but his tactics are just a little bit off. Um, but then you must also turn around to people like Stuart Broad and Jimmy Anderson and go, you've played God knows how many games of cricket together, taking best part of a thousand wickets together. What, what, are you, what, what are you doing in that scenario to help Joe Root out? 
and that's where it should come back onto them. Why, why exactly are you bowling with five sweepers, James Anderson, to to a guy who bats number seven for Pakistan in England when it's cloudy as yeah. and you're playing on a really green wicket? Uh, I, I didn't really get that, but you know, it's, it doesn't matter. It's it's not affected the result because nothing could affect the result. Um, should we talk about some of the things that, that could have happened to maybe improve? improve what was televised or, or what was presented to, to the cricket viewing public. Um, Ross, I don't know if you've got any well, ideas. I, I do like the outrage. <laughs> you like I, do, the outrage. I do like the outrage at the moment. Yeah, I think the outrage is, is justified. The uh, rain rules are rather ridiculous, I think. And actually, they're ridiculous even all the way down to club club level. Um, but I think, all in all, like yesterday evening, it was like beautiful sunshine, wasn't it, down in Hampshire? For the, for the last kind of like two and a half hours where we could have had play, there was the opportunity to do it and there was just no, no one was asked no one was asked whatsoever and um if it was that bit someone someone commented that um if there was a crowd in the umpires would have been more likely to try and get the game on yeah and it's just like well, well hang on a minute mate you're still still paying everybody is it's still everyone's still living in the coronavirus world anyway you want to watch cricket just because people are there people are not there shouldn't make that difference in my opinion my favorite bit of the the test I think was when they came off for bad light on I think day three, um, and Pakistan were having a practice match next door. <laughs> Wahab Riaz was bowling, and and no one was going off there. I just what? What's the thought process? <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, I mean to add to that point, Jack. I mean the thought process as well. Of going, we lost that morning, pretty much a morning session, and then we'd had lunch. We literally started oh at twelve thirty, then had lunch at one at half one, and it's just like you do it's yourself a classic no favors. cricket move, isn't it? Yeah, Matt, well, they, they do themselves no favors. Do they? There's the only thing live on television other than the snooker, which is never going to come off a of rain, is it? And you're sitting there going, put put as much of it on as possible. We get the snooker was good though. Maybe they wanted to watch it. Maybe we should it start amazing. a snooker podcast because that was that. I'll tell you what, that Friday at the snooker was some of the best sport um, of the year. I mean, I know it's not up against much. But two two <laughs> semi-finals that went 17-16, What could we call it? I don't, the Snooker Podcast? <laughs> <laughs> well, I had, think you're onto something. Yeah, Selby, B.O. <laughs> Sullivan, Kyron Wilson, the, the up-and-comer on the, on the other table. Um, good, it was good stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah. Max, what about... I was going to say, what about Michael Vaughan's um, idea of... Uh, when, it, when the floodlights um, overtake natural light as the, the main light source, which means that normally you have to go off, which is a separate issue that maybe could be uh, re-looked at. Um, the idea of replacing the red ball with a similarly old pink ball. I think Michael Vaughan's an idiot, so I'm disinclined to agree with anything that he suggests. Yeah, but in, in this particular instance, it's even more ridiculous because we've seen the pink ball does behave differently and especially under lights, it seems like yeah, you're better off playing with the, the pink ball in in the sunshine. And it does just... It just changes the game, doesn't it? Yeah, I am... Um, <laughs> What I would suggest, you know, I think this probably should... I mean, this is such a cricket thing that this hasn't happened already. Why is there not a universal bad light level? It seemed that they set it wrong for this test match, almost. Like, they, the, everyone was irate in the commentary box about how light it actually was when they went off the first time, but they can't change it after the precedent has been set within that match. Why is there not just a, a level of light at which cricket cannot be played and then... And then if there's an argument about it, that's the thing we review, not not what some old gimmer with a light meter has decided. Yeah, Richard Ketterbridge just got quite a bit chilly out here. I fancy a cup of tea. <laughs> what, what was, there, was, there was also one suggestion around, they're all in hotel rooms. 
Yeah. They've got separate squads for the ODI and the test squads. Uh, couldn't you just extend the extend it just, I, to, just to keep on extending it and move 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 things out? I think that's have a rain day. I think that's sort of nonsense, to be honest. Um, I, I yeah, I do think they should have, they should look at some of the regulation around that. And um, I the floodlight thing, I, I don't really understand, um, to be honest, either. Uh, and it was all just very annoying. Um, what? What really perplexed me, though, was that they actually came back out on Monday evening. Almost, It's almost like they're taking the piss out of everyone. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, we Here's can what play. you could have won. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, 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 yeah I mean, you can probably tell I haven't got that much motivation to talk about this test match, to be honest. Well, I think we've done pretty well. Yeah. Why don't they play a T20 instead of coming out to do the test match? Did they just play an unofficial T20 and televise that? People would have enjoyed yeah, that. that. Yeah, people would have loved watching Dom Sibley and Rory Burns play it, 2020 cricket. At the very least, it would have been funny, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, that was really good, actually. The Fridge, who's obviously lost a bit of weight, his run out was a spectacular. Yeah. And there's no way he's getting there if he's still 12 kilos heavier. You know what, Ross? I think that's a really good way to end the... the we'll end on a positive. Good run out, Dom Sibley. Um, Max, the selection for the third test. Um, I believe you were having a look at this. Yeah, so... Um... I suppose with the fact that barely any cricket was played um, and there will have been a reasonable amount of rest, what do England do with their bowling attack? Do we, do we think we're going to go with the same same as, uh, same as again? Right. Because there's no... Uh, you can't make an argument now, can you, for, for rest? It's like, oh, he's played two tests, three tests in a row, we're going to have to rest. There are a couple of slash Anderson. There are two or three points that I think England need to have a look at here. One, um, I think they probably should play Ollie Robinson for a test this summer. Uh, it seems he's the succession plan, uh, and it also seems that, in like a lot of other circumstances, we're very keen to to blood people, as it were, early. I mean, if you look at Don Bess and Zach Crawley, probably getting chances they don't deserve, but they're young. Um, so I don't really understand why we're not following the same thought process for Ollie Robinson. So I, I would pick Ollie Robinson. Um, after this summer as well, I'm not absolutely sure that Joffre Archer is an elite test match bowler, but I am absolutely sure that Joffre Archer is a better choice than Sam Curran. Um, so I think, <laughs> I think he should be in the team. So I, I would bring, uh, Ollie Robinson in for Bess and I would bring Joffre Archer in for Curran. Um, what will England do? Who knows? Ross, any, any thoughts? <laughs> uh, give Ollie Pope the gloves. <laughs> we can keep <laughs> Uh, no, I, th- I think I think I actually agree with you for once, Jack. I think that Ollie Robinson. What's what's the point in taking him out of the squads and putting him then putting him back into the England if you're not going to play him? Um, there's no way they're going to drop Jimmy Anderson strip broad, but it's just not going to happen. Uh, Chris Wokes is obviously you're not going to drop him either. I don't understand why they keep on picking Sam Curran. And I mean, we talk about it later with uh, a little bit with Dan um, around. He makes things happen, but I just. I just don't like him as a player. Well, I, th- I think the um, I think the logic behind Sam Curran for this test is probably batting, isn't it? But I don't even though he's not even yeah. though he's not that good. He might, he might, he's not that good of a player. He averages what twenty four. If if no, that's no way too high. That's no, it is about twenty four. I think uh, uh, he's yeah, that's pretty good down at eight or nine. But isn't he's it? batting nine, so you're not you're rarely gonna get the twenty four runs out of him because he's the, yeah. the people he has to bat with later. So it's not. It doesn't make sense to, to to stack a guy at nine who who's really offering not that much with the ball because they might over uh, five tests score thirty runs more than Joffre Archer. 
Um, yeah. Well, well, Joffre well, Archer is definitely number eleven bat, but I think Dom. Do we, we keep picking Dom Bess as well, like you kind of said, Jack. I mean, his batting's okay, but his bowling is just is very average. Like if you're if well, you're picking, we're not bowlers, even bowling him. You, That's the other yeah, thing. You, <laughs> oh, we're not even using him. If, you, if you're going to pick a bowler, one bowl him. That's number one on the agenda. Two, <laughs> two. If you're going to do, if you're going to pick a bowler, why don't you pick someone like Jack Leach, who's going to be, who's going to likely take more wickets than Don Bess in these yeah. in these situations? Uh, Max, you, what, have you got any different thoughts? It sounds like me and Ross would effectively pick the same team, which is all the same batsmen, but we'd sub in Archer and we'd sub in Robinson for Bess and Curran. Um, Max, would you would you view that differently? Uh, oh, I Ben think... Folks, get Ben Folks in. <laughs> I think Ben Folks has to come in and uh, open the batting, um, <laughs> and also bat at two and three. No, um, I think it's a really good point about giving some other people a go. Like they've been in this bubble for the for the whole of the summer, haven't been able to play in the uh, in the Bob Willis Trophy because they've been in the bio bubble. I and... actually think Ollie Robinson's playing against Kent today. So does that mean he can't play in the next Test match? Oh no, sorry, it's Ollie Robinson, the Kent player. That yeah. was what blew my mind. Sorry, yeah, my, my fault. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, my fault. Yeah, different people. <laughs> um, but you know, you never know. There might be some sort of uh, admin mess up on the on the part of uh, England, in which case they get confused and don't pick him. But uh, I think it's fair to bring someone in. But I don't, I, I don't know if you can bring in someone for both Bess and Curran because of the batting. I don't. I honestly don't think it's that as much of an issue. I just don't see. You've got Wokes. I, I don't think that... I mean, like Robinson can bat. Robinson's got a first-class century in 550s. I had a look at this earlier this week, and he averages 20. So he, you're really not, right, down, so you're not downgrading that much picking Robinson over... Over Curran or, yeah, or Bess. Bess yeah. Fair enough. Well, and I then think Archer, that in that case... Ross thinks he's a number 11, but I actually think... I mean, he's not going to be a technically good batsman, but I think over his test career, if he, if he plays 50 tests, I think he'll get his average up to 15, which is fine for a number 9. That's absolutely acceptable. Um, <laughs> yeah. So carry on, yeah. Max. Well, no. So I think I think we're in some agreement that um, there should be some change and potentially give Ollie Robinson a go, especially now that we can't lose the series. I think that makes a difference because um, obviously we, we spoke about it in the West Indies series, didn't we? With the the West Indies winning the first test, that we were sort of forced into trying to pick our best eleven in both the next two games yeah. because we wanted to win the series. Now there's a little bit less pressure off. Yeah. Um, so I think that would be a reasonable route to go down. Anyway, we'll see what the the wheel of fun generates uh, when, they, <laughs> when they spin it at ECBHQ. Uh, any any anyone got anything else left to mention for the England v Pakistan matches? Well, I think it might be worth highlighting like... that um, the whole rain debacle might benefit Pakistan in a way as well, and obviously they lack as much depth as we do on the bowling front, um, and they now don't have to rotate where perhaps they might have thought about, I don't know, maybe bringing Wahab Riaz or someone like that, but now they can go with those those three, four bowlers that they uh, obviously are their, their top bowlers, so yeah. that's good news for them. And they've all had a little practice this afternoon as well, so they won't <laughs> Yeah, about keep themselves being, fresh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ross, have you got anything to add? Uh, no, just um, If you're Sham Masood in this situation, you've scored 150 in the first innings, he's then got back-to-back ducks, how are you feeling right now? Are you, are you going, do you know what, this is a really successful tour? I think probably. Setting yourself up for, yeah? Yeah, Would you have taken 150 and then got ducks in the rest of the series? That's basically what Dom Sibley does for England. He doesn't seem to mind. 
I d- definitely, if you if you come to England and you score 150 as an opening batsman, it doesn't matter what you do in any of the other games. You've had a good series. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I don't listen to who else has come there and done that. No, I was just, I was just opening it up to you guys. Yeah, yeah. It's no, quite no, an interesting right. thing. But he'll want to get obviously in the last test. He'll want to get uh, a 30 off 100 balls, and then he'll say he had a really good tour. Uh, if he if he can have yeah. one more decent knock as an opening batsman, then he he will think mission success. Um, it, well, obviously he'd love to get another 100 and finish with an average of 75 or something but if we're being realistic um, if he can get another 30 another 40 over the next two innings he'll say wow yeah. he'll pat himself on the back and um, go on his way I'd have thought well on the flip side of that Rory Burns he's uh, the last two test series people are kind of trying now to talk about his technique more and more he's not getting big scores anymore Um we thinking that's fine, and he's just another England Open. He'll be all right, or is it, oh. is it a sign to be worried, Max? I think um, should we just let him crack on for a little bit because uh, we've tried chopping and changing openers quite a lot over the last few years, and the success rate of that um, approach has been limited at best. I think Rory Burns has got enough money in the bank for at least another couple of series. To be honest, I don't. I don't even think there's a question about it. Um, if you look at what he's done since sort of the beginning of last year, averaging 35 with the bat opening, he's played in that time Australia at home uh, in England, where where opening the batting's pretty tough. He's been to New Zealand, um, where arguably he should have scored some more runs. He got injured in South Africa, um, and then and then has played in England again. Um, and I had not the greatest summer, you'd say, but not equally, not not being a complete disaster. Uh, so I, I think leave that be, like Max says. Um, shall we take a quick break and then then play our interview with Dan Weston? Sounds good. Yeah. Uh, Ross, would you like to just briefly mention or summarise the interview for people who are about to listen? Oh, well, if you're interested at all in anything around kind of data analytics and cricket analytics, we're trying we're trying to get under the skin of what it means for cricket moving forward. Um, there's a great anecdote in there that compares, but puts caber tossing, I think, is in, in there for some <laughs> for some ridiculous reason. Um, but actually, just tries to show that how immature cricket is at the moment in terms of data analytics and actually the journey it needs to go on in order for it to become even more prevalent like they are in American sports. Um, Dan's a really, really nice guy, um, gave a really good insight, and actually uh, I was really blown away by actually some of the level of insight we got from our limited knowledge of it. It was weird that I felt that we knew actually quite a lot, and which shows you just how immature cricket is in that, in that world. Yeah, I think particularly as the interview progresses and we start talking about some of the more complex situations, um, there's, you really do learn um, why cricket analytics is, is required. Um, anyway, we'll play that now. South Africa have made a real mess of this. And Donald Wright and Australia are in the final. The match has been tied. What a mix-up. South Africa despair. They're down on their knees. Unbelievable. How on earth did South Africa make a mess of that? Darcy had been given a message of 2-9. Today, we are joined by a man who is at the forefront of the data revolution in cricket. He's the Data Insights Manager for the Birmingham Phoenix and has recently released a book, Strategies for Success in the IPL. Welcome to the Cricket Podcast. How are you doing? Dan Weston. Yeah, hi. How are you doing? Yeah, really good to be on here. Thanks for having me on. No problem. 
Um, I mean, I'm just going to ask the dumb question straight out of the blocks. What is cricket analytics trying to actually achieve? And what, what, what is it So to, to the layman's of the cricketing world? Okay, so I can give you sort of my personal take on it and why the reason why I got involved in it primarily. I mean, I've always been a fan of cricket to start with. And then sort of about sort of four or five years ago, I started like watching it a lot more intensely and started building some statistical databases and stuff, just basic stuff on players and things like that. And from from my perspective, I looked at the fact that commentators and teams didn't really seem to make a lot of decisions and comments basically which which are in line with the stats and, and data generally so um one that i always sort of trot out really is about james faulkner so he's um known as somehow from commentators he's known as this like death finisher devastating death finisher i think probably there was one innings that he played in an odi against england like about 10 years ago the, that's influenced their kind of mindset there and if you look at like a basic stats database you'll see that he in T20, he hits about 10% of boundaries, which is like way below average. So, yeah, it's a good, it's a good example of like challenging the commentator's wisdom, if you like. And I think that generally speaking, like commentators are quite um, sort of biased by notable events, if you like. So, some more good examples would be Sam Curran, he makes things happen. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> well like, yeah, he makes things happen. Probably because he's quite a good player, not 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 because he has like some like random ability to to get something out of nothing basically. Which and then and they don't, they don't remember these types. He bowls like a six over spell and doesn't take a single wicket. Is he makes things happen and and also from like a team's perspective as well. Like you see to make some really sort of curious strategy decisions in matches, uh, be it like bowler selection or like batting orders and stuff like that. And then also like, as I've got into it a lot more, it's like working with teams. You see that they're not very good at like understanding the potential and current ability levels of a lot of younger and lower profile players as well. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of stuff in, involved with it. Um, but I think that's sort of like why I got into it and, and my take on it a little bit really. Yeah, I think that's uh, really interesting to see how, well, how it's sort of born out of commentators and a lot of their anecdotal uh, evidence and, and their experiences sort of not, yeah, not really being backed up by, by the facts. Um, I think, in terms of um, analysing cricket, we, if you could tell us a bit about how how you go about it. So, let I me mean, say, for example, in a in a sport like football, um, where analytics is really quite big, and um, sort of the general fan will have quite a good understanding of you know, terms like expected goals and that sort of thing. Um, so, in terms of cricket, how how would you go about analysing things? Are there sort of new metrics that um, you develop that are sort of new to the game and at the forefront? Yeah, well, there's, there's obviously some stats and stuff that you can get on you know typical websites like Quick Info or whatever. But I think so a lot of them are quite basic and they don't really inform the um, the person who's looking for them that much. So obviously I've had to kind of look to find more relevance and find my own metrics, if you like. So for example, give you give you some context that like on Quick Info you might be able to find like a um, player's average for their career and for example, in first-class cricket, they don't even have a divisional split between Div 1 and Div 2. And all, all the websites are the same like that. So you see a player average 40 throughout their career. I mean, I was, I was kind of profiling a player <laughs> earlier for a report. I can't, can't name a player, but I'll, I'll, give you, I'll, give you, I'll give you this kind of instance. Yeah, like if you spend like 10 years or five years in Div 2 and 
difference in standard between the two divisions on the whole. So, so that is quite misleading. And career averages, I think, are quite misleading as well because they they tend to undervalue young players who have um, more upside and more growth in them, but then they overrate players who are in decline still as well. So, so generally, I go for like the last two or three years, depending on sample size, and I think that's a lot more more relevant. And also, for example, in T20 as well, the advent of faster scoring really kicked in around 2017. So we've got to compare that like for like. And sometimes you see like people talk about like the play- players of different eras and how they would have fared right now. And I think you've got to compare like era to era. It's, it's very, very difficult because like, for example, the first first few years of T20 and like a 120, 125 strike rate probably would have been absolutely fine. But now it's like potentially to be a liability. So there's a lot of different things there. So like, metrics like, you know, had to, had to kind of, Devise myself stuff. I, I, I look. I look at stuff like boundary percentage quite a lot for players, both batting, scoring, and bowling concession, because I found it to be like a massive, massive driver of success. Like in my book, I talk about it. In the IPL, uh, I think about 87 percent of matches are won by the team with the highest boundary percentage in that individual match, which is like so, huge. Stuff. So, is that so saying, what you're saying there? Is, yeah, England yeah. Were, were right to win the World Cup. That's a that's a fair <laughs> metric to decide a tie. Yeah, well, I kind of, I kind of, yeah, well, I suppose so, yeah. <laughs> and I kind of put a bit of that in my sort of social media stuff as well, is that, that in ODIs in particular, the, the England were the only team sort of that hit a historical benchmark in terms of boundary hitting in advance of the tournament in the sort of like two years prior to, to the tournament. So for me, they, they were the clear and obvious favourites to win the tournament. Now, in T20, I think it's more tricky because... In in fifty over cricket, I think it's a lot easier to hide a bowler or two, whereas in T Twenty, it's it's much more difficult to do that. And and particularly with regards to like death bowler, I think it's almost a completely different discipline and, and, and almost a different sport. So I'm much heavier on say boundary pre- prevention in T Twenty than I'm on, on necessarily on boundary scoring. And you see like quite a lot of the successful teams around the world are not necessarily have all the biggest hitters, but they have guys who can keep it real tight with the ball. Yeah, I love that. Um, how did you usually get? So we kind of talked about before how you um, got interested in it and um, kind of why you've done it so for so long. Um, what's your role with Birmingham Phoenix? And I mean, I mean, it was born out of the hundred, right? That's where the yeah. that's where it's coming from. Yeah. So, so um, I was I was involved with them from the start uh, since, since they, they kind of got got going as a, as a team, really. So. Um, I'm data insights manager there. Um, really enjoyed the role so far. So, so um, I'm working with uh, Craig, who's the general manager, and Andrew McDonald, who's the head coach, and Dan Vittori, who's, who's the assistant as well. Mm. Um, so, so there were some great guys. They're all fantastic. Really, sort of buy into the data as well. I mean, we kind of challenge each other quite a lot on you know the different different opinions on players. But yeah, I think for the vast majority of time, the data sort of aligns with, with the coaches' opinions anyway, which is obviously a real positive. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, for me, I, obviously the the draft was massive in October last year. So, so I was profiling a lot of players and we had a, some really good discussions and stats analysis and stuff on on the players likely to form the the basis of the draft. And, yeah, the, and the draft obviously... In London in October was fantastic as well, but but um, we had a quite a tricky draft position. So we were we were eighth, mm. and, <laughs> and, and then immediately first again in the round afterwards because of the snake format of the draft. So I, I think probably we were we had a bit of a disadvantage compared to a few other people in the draft. But um, 
yeah, no, fantastic. And it's just obviously really disappointing that the, the tournament's been postponed next for this year, but you know, looking forward to next year. So you, so you talk around, sorry, Jack, um, you talk around um, where you were profiling players. Did you change yeah. any of your logic around what it was going to be for the 100? Did you have to, did you have to change anything or did you just use like T20 statistics? Yeah, well, obviously, T20 player data is, is you'd say, the, the most relevant to it, being the fact that it's only like 20 balls less. But, uh, yeah, I did have a look at trying to work out what that like, stuff like par scores were and how, how, how things might change with 20 less balls. I mean, I can't really talk about it too much, I guess, but in theory, like, you, would, you would think that the batsmen should be, look to be more aggressive because they've got, still got 10 wickets, but they've got... 20 less balls to, to use them in so so there's not really that much value in wicket retention at all um, so I guess that might have had some impact but um, yeah I, I, whether whether teams and players are going to think that sort of optimally is a, another matter entirely mm-hmm. um, T10 was quite useful to have a look at as well and to see how players reacted with with fewer balls so obviously half half the T20 balls and yeah, and in, in T10 in particular, I've got some really quite strong stra- strong strategies and theories. So, uh, what you find a lot of the time now in T20, in T10, sorry, is that teams have picked a lot of all rounders, whereas I think that the opposite strategy is much more viable. So, uh, top four in T10 in particular, I can't remember what it is, but I think they face about 70% of the balls. Mm-hmm. And so, there's no point in having like guys at like six, seven, and eight who can hit when they're probably never going to be used or very unlikely to be used. Yeah. So I would pick guys who are like really strong at their own disciplines. So you're looking at maybe like say five five top order batters, one of which will be a keeper, um, a guy at six who who's primarily a bowler but can hit like twenty percent boundaries or something like that, and then a really good bowling attack. I think that would be a really strong blueprint for the T10. Mm-hmm. So, so I really, I really like that. I mean, um, so I'm guessing when you come to doing like the draft strategies, you've got the kind of different models that you're using. Did any of those models anticipate Dane Villas going for so much money in the hundred? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's difficult for me to comment much on opposition team <laughs> strategies, but yeah, it did kind of catch me on catch me on the hop a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, if we can talk about some of the the in-game strategy quickly, that'd be that'd be interesting. So, if you take T uh, Twenty cricket or or the hundred. Um, I think you'd probably define them as, as efficiency-based sports, and by that I mean uh, they're games where you have a limited amount of time to, to maximise your production, um, so 120 balls to score as many runs as possible. Um, you've written a book on, on winning strategies uh, for, for the IPL. Can you yeah. talk us through what sort of the top two or three things teams should be doing um, that they maybe aren't uh, to, to win a T20 tournament? Yeah, well, I think it's quite sort of relevant to each different competition there's different skill sets and different different sort of demands for each comp so for example in 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 PSL they've got such a strong local bowling core like real you see that you see it in the current test matches to an extent as well like they've got like 20 plus really good fast bowlers uh, and some decent spinners as well but what they really lack is like boundary hitting uh, domestic batsmen, so you would say probably two guys who can do that job will be Cameron Akmal and Asif Ali. But but on the whole, they tend to have guys who hit like below sixteen percent boundaries, and in some cases, quite a lot below sixteen percent boundaries. And so w- what we see there is like um, the coaches picking overseas batters in the draft and picking local bowlers if they're smart. 
doesn't always happen, but that's generally the case. And to some extent, you can you can say the same about Bangladesh as well. In India, it's it's a little bit different. Um, they have still have a bit of a lack of boundary hitting batsmen, despite a lot of people thinking differently. Obviously, there are players who are excellent in the local pool, such as Rishabh Pant. One, one example, and I've got massive hopes for a young batter at RCB called Devdutt Padakal, who, who they got for like 20 lark at the auction, which is minimum price. Um, I think that he's going to be really good at opening batsmen who should bat, should open that way bats in Karnataka in, in sort of the side Mushtakali trophy. Um, what, what we find with Indian cricket as well is that they have a lot of guys who hit at like 130, and you even find that in the lower levels of Indian cricket, that's also quite prevalent as well. So, so you can understand why teams pay like big money for for boundary hitters. You know, the guys like Andre Russell and 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 to sort of lower it, lesser extent like guys like Chris Gale and, and Sonia Narayan as an all rounder as well. Uh, and there aren't really many genuine all rounders in that in that playing pool as well. So you can again, I mean, for me, if if uh, you're looking at like an open market, Andre Russell would be. Either him or Bumrah would be the the two highest prices if everyone was up for auction at the same time, because they just they've got skill sets where which just aren't replicable in in the player pool. Uh, what, what there is in India is there's like a, a plethora of of good spinners. Um, so I mean, like you could pick like three spinners for each team, and there would still be plenty left over who are half decent. And and I think that on the whole. IPL teams could probably bowl a little bit more spin as a strategy, particularly when they're playing against CSK at the at um, Chapork. Because what CSK have done really well in the last couple of years since they got back in the tournament is that they've realised that their home ground is like a spin-friendly wicket and they're bowling about 10% more spin-overs than their opposition. Uh, and it wasn't that difficult to sort of work out that that might have been the case in advance of them coming back in the tournament either. If you look at like older historical data, that was kind of, it was always quite a spinner's wicket. And yeah, they've done that really well. They've also won a lot of tosses as well. So that's been quite lucky for them too. And so there's a lot of different factors as to why CSK have done well. I think a lot of people just automatically associated with like MS Dhoni being genius and, and he, he may well be and he, he probably is but there's also some other factors involved. Yeah I think just as a general comment it's quite interesting I think in, in some of these T20 franchise leagues how you almost get like a stereotypical image of, of how some of those nations do play cricket so you sort of mentioned there with India you get fluent stroke makers who maybe don't smack the ball all over the place and spinners then in Pakistan you've got lots of fast bowlers but maybe not so much batting. Uh, and then in, in the CPL, you've got people who hit the ball really hard, but um, maybe no spinners. It's, uh... Yeah, it's an interesting one because like that, that you talk about the CPL, that a lot of the West Indian players are like magnificent boundary hitters, but uh, if you look at like their non-boundary strike rates, they can often be quite limited, so they're not such good rotators. So there is like a... There's a huge dynamic for each country often. Like Look at England, for example. I think if there was like a World T20 tomorrow, England's third team would probably still have better batters than most of the um, other other countries. Mm. But by the same token, their bowling probably would struggle. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's really interesting how the uh, sort of approaches differ like across different leagues, sort of different, um, yeah, different host nations of T20s. But the other thing with uh, with cricket, which is sort of an interesting dynamic, is how many different 
um, strategies exist just across the same sport. So you mentioned um, earlier that in 50 over cricket, for example, it's much easier to hide a bowler than 20 over cricket. Um, and then sort of going even more to a, to another extreme with um, with test cricket, how do sort of the the strategies and the approaches to sort of defining winning strategies differ when it comes to test cricket compared to something like 2020? Yes, yeah, it's such a such an interesting one because I actually kind of almost look at them treat all three formats as completely different. I don't, I don't, I try not to have any crossover in sort of opinions and strategies from from one format to another. And yeah, we, in tests, there's. I'll start with England and in tests in England. I'm really strong on the fact that that I don't think England need to be playing a specialist spinner in in their first team, especially when you've got a player like Joe Root who can provide some some decent enough spin out of the batting group as well. And, you know, in the past, Joe Denny's also been in, in the batting group and he can contribute some spin too. And if you look at, like, the spin... That's, that's, that's a very bold statement to make about Joe Denny's <laughs> ability, let, let alone his bowling ability. He's done, done well for Ken, yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah... Um, I don't. If you look at, like, say, the usage of Dominic Best in, in England, it's been quite limited. And personally, I mean, having Ben Stokes in in the top six as a genuine all rounder in in red ball cricket is is massive, and it gives your team so much flexibility. So what I would do is, you've got that luxury of picking another batsman and either batting him at seven or dropping Butler down to seven, and then you've still got say Chris Wokes to come in at eight, who's a very, very decent, decent batsman at that level and certainly better than pretty much every other number eight in, in test cricket right now. So, so the, if you look at like the, the stats in regards to spinners in England, um, very, very uh, few scenarios see that the spin average is less than pace. And so pace is, pace is king in England. Um, yeah. And then, but then you look at what other teams have done in England. Oftentimes they've picked two spinners. So Pakistan have picked two spinners in, in the first test. They didn't in the second test. West Indies did with, with Rakeem Cornwall and, and Roston Chase in the um, final test in, in England as well. And then it, sometimes I think there's quite a confused strategy because Jason Holder won a toss and, and, and elected to field first, having picked two spinners. And to me that's a bit weird because you're... The the the, be- the most benefit you're going to derive from spinner is in the fourth innings, but by inserting your opposition, you kind of lose that edge. So so if if you're going to pick two spinners, you need to bat first. So it's just, just there's not for me there's not a lot of joined up thinking really involved sometimes in like test strategies. The problem is is that you don't often get a detailed explanation of strategies from coaches or captains in like press conferences and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, just maybe looking into that in a little bit more detail, obviously England um, are, are well-resourced and, and have an analytics department. I mean, that one's quite a basic basic um, mistake, I think, picking two spinners and, and batting second. You don't need an analytics department to, to tell <laughs> you that, um, yeah. that you've, you've blown that call. Um, it was interesting how like, not people picked up on it though. Yeah, um, but do you think do you think sort of more generally, um, teams would benefit from the from the input of analytics when it when it comes to Test cricket, or is it is that the domain, if you like, of T Twenty franchise leagues where things like your draft strategy and, and auctions are are going to have a much bigger impact on 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 the outcome? Obviously, if you're picking a Test team, you've got the pool of players and that's it. You can't. 
you can't break the budget to go and buy Steve Smith. Like it's not. Um, <laughs> if your batting's yeah. crap, it's, it's you're just stuck with that. Um, but but is there any is there an edge that you could gain with a, with a better analytics department? Do you think? Yeah. Well. Okay. So, so obviously there's that extra branch of it in in T20 with like draft and auction strategies, no doubt. But I think that it's still really relevant in in all formats. And Red Bull cricket's no different. So you look at, for example, you talk about the player pool, and you can't you can't bring in a particular player and that's obviously true but by the same token you, you, you could use analytics to pick the right squad you can also use analytics to sort of pick the right team for the conditions and opposition as well so for example they talked about Dominic Best against the, the West Indies when, when they had like a team full of right-handers when Jack Leach might be a better option from that respect as well so you can use numbers in it to back up those type of arguments too but also you can look at like expected averages as well and expected performance figures so for in theory, you could probably look at a situation where you could combine any 11 players in English cricket and work out what they would score and what would they concede on average against any team. And then you can sort of put one in and put one out and work out if it's going to be any better or worse and stuff like that. And then find out what the most sort of positive expected value combination of, of team is for, for um, England to choose, for example. So, so, yeah. so you're effectively of, like, describing some kind of depth chart system almost where you, yeah. you can map... The, the teams you'll be playing against their strengths and weaknesses the pitch and yeah. um, and, and be able to pick the, the team that picks has the most expected runs I guess yeah, the follow up to the, yeah. I guess the follow up to that is how do you calculate expected runs or expected wickets um, prior to ball one of the test match without without knowing some of that extra information about yeah. say the pitch or conditions good question so so from from my perspective I, I developed like an algorithm which um, equates any player uh, their previous performance levels, which in a time frame that I consider relevant, to uh, what they to expect, to what they would expect to average in Test cricket. So effectively, I can do that for any player, even players like who have only played in second eleven. I can mm-hmm. work out their expected averages in Test cricket. Probably won't be very good, but, but <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> um, and I think that that's that's like a, that's that's a start really. So so for example, one one thing that that that, that identified was that and I've been talking about this quite a lot on Twitter in the past as well, is that Chris Wokes, bat plus ball, his value is massive. Yeah. Especially in England. And, and you would say that, like, for example, he, he's he got, like, relatively comparable numbers in England to, to Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad with the ball, but obviously he's a much better batsman. And, and I think that that's where, if you're looking at like, the longevity of Stuart Broad's potential career, the fact that he he declined with the bat over the last say five years or so, and then maybe he's like trying to reinvent himself <laughs> with like lower order hitter again, it might actually help him. To, if if you could say, okay, well over over the course of the next five years, if he can average in the low twenties with the bat, it adds massive value mm-hmm. over like a, a player who 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 like Jimmy's average is like around ten or below, for example. Yep. So it gives him an edge. If you're looking at selection as well. So I think in terms of bowlers, sometimes you've got to look at like the bat plus ball impact rather than just just ball. If that makes yeah, sense. no, definitely, definitely does. Yeah. Um, moving away from kind of the, the test world, um, mm. you specialise in kind of recruitment and draft strategy, and that was kind of your role um, with with Birmingham Phoenix. I mean, uh, can you talk us through how this kind of works and w- what makes a good draft strategy? And then the, the second point to that is around um, what's the day like. The draft day must be really exciting. Must must be a party. 
yeah, I, I have to admit that like probably the draft day was like the highlight of my career so far in terms of the hundred because yeah, the whole the whole experience is fantastic. You you're surrounded by like high profile people, famous names and, and stuff like that. So that was that was great. And then we had, everyone sort of went back to the bar at the hotel that everyone was staying in and sort of you know socialized and, and kind of caught up with each other for 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 a number of hours afterwards as well. So it was it's it was a fantastic experience from that perspective. I mean, when you talk about like how to build a successful draft strategy, um, sort of like on a general basis, you would always, for me, a starting point would always be to identify the strengths and weaknesses of the local talent pool. It's, mm-hmm. it's that, you, you have to do it because if you look at like historical leagues and sort of teams in historical leagues, the overwhelming majority of teams who qualify at the group stages have like this really strong domestic core. So the players that they can rely on, so six, seven locals who are like above average quality, who they can really rely on. So understanding where the, the local pool is really weak or strong is 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 massive. So obviously earlier I spoke about the IPL and said like, you know, they don't have a lot of like domestic batters who can strike at like 150 plus on a consistent basis. And they, they don't have a lot of great death bowlers or general runners, but they have like a ton of spinners. So you so for example you in that league you wouldn't necessarily want to pay like big bucks for for a spinner no and you can get like a 90 percent version of him for like not not very much money at all and then you can save your your uh you know budget for for the areas where you need to to pay premium money because the skill set's not out there so so local talent is massive and 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 that's something that i that i'm really really strong about so i, I kind of look, look at it like a bit like a cake really and and the local talent is like the the base and then the overseas like the icing on the cake if like if you like because yeah an overseas player is is going to be of a massive help high quality overseas players are always going to be a massive help but you won't win anything with like three or four overseas and a load of rubbish domestic players it just it just won't work mm-hmm. so you know there's teams who have tried that. <laughs> it's, it's really gone too well for them generally um so yeah um you've got to identify areas where like, the local talent pool is strong or weak and then adapt accordingly and, and, and obviously that that changes league on league and country on country what do you do when someone takes one of the players that you had uh, earmarked as, as one you really wanted do you is yeah. there is there a, do you game plan for that yeah, yeah. So uh, that did actually happen quite a few times as well. Um, yeah, uh, thanks to Shane Warren a lot of the time. <laughs> he said that we went back a few times on the reverse trip as well. And so on the same well, so that, yeah, fun times. Yeah, um, yeah. We had like options in terms of we thought that if if he would go and he would go and he would go, then we would get this guy and stuff like that. So yeah, there was, there was situations where, and, and even a few times I kind of assigned like a percentage chance that I thought a player would go by a specific round and didn't always happen. Uh, so yeah, there was some, some quite surprising decisions. And then the interesting thing was like after the drafts and stuff, you could talk, you were talking to like the opposition analysts and stuff and then they would be like, Oh, well, the reason why we did this was because of a knock-on effect of something else or something like that. Mm-hmm. So there was, there was often some quite like logical and legitimate reasons as to why people made what seemed to be like random moves in the market kind of thing. I mean, you end up with Kane Williamson, so things aren't all that bad, are they? No, no, I'm looking forward, looking forward to that. I mean, he, he's someone I think think can do really, really well in, in, in this particular form. And I think he's quite an adaptable player as well. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing him at the club for sure. 
Yeah. So if we if we if we zoom out a little bit and have a look at where cricket analytics is now, um, if you compare it with with some other sports in the world, it, it's it feels like we're either right at the beginning of a data revolution or or that hasn't even started. Hmm. Um, what what's your sort of view on that? Like where if you, if you say. I know baseball's ten out of ten in terms of its uh, analytical development, and caber um, tossing's one out of ten because nobody cares about that. Caber <laughs> tossing? Where did you pull that from? <laughs> well, I was just thinking of an obscure sport. On a scale of one to ten, where do you think cricket is on that on that journey, and and where do you project that it it will end up? Well, before you gave the caber uh, tossing. <laughs> I was going to ask you if we're allowed to give minus figures. Okay. <laughs> All right, well. <laughs> I'm not sure we're worse than cable tossing, but you may be like a three. Right. Um, yeah. Um, so I, I used to play online poker full time back in back in the day, uh, slightly after the uh, Chris Moneymaker boom. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, poker has gone from being like, an industry where like basically no one had a clue to everyone having a clue within about 10 years and you've gone from like pretty much zero efficiency to like 90 plus percent efficiency and you know there's people on their computers and they've got game theory optimal strategies and stuff like that and and you can even like buy books and stuff which will detail that and and i think that now cricket is like where poker was when chris moneymaker won wsap and i think it was in 2003 it 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 so effectively, um, a lot of people in the game are still playing any two cards. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what a great... Yeah, and a few of them are playing 7-2 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, um, you know, there's a lot of efficiency that can be gained for sure, like 100%. And, and yeah, the problem is, is that I don't think that many teams can say that their analysts have got a significant input into tactics, recruitment and selection. Everyone will have an analyst, don't get me wrong, but how many of them have got a significant voice? How many of them have got the uh, the guts to stand up to like a big name and say, no, you're doing it wrong? Probably not any. Yeah, it must be pretty intimidating if you've got Ricky Ponting kind of sitting there who kind of knows nearly everything about cricket and you're sitting there going, actually, mate, you should uh, you should be bowling this left-hander to this guy? And it, if, it, if Ricky Ponting <laughs> tells you to do one, you probably do one. Well, no, I mean, I don't know Ricky, so, so I can't really... Can't really <laughs> What, what I might do in that situation, but generally I, I, I don't really, I'm not really shy on giving an opinion. It has been positively accepted by the people that I've worked with, and, and in, in actually in some instances, the day that that stops is the day they don't trust what I've got to say. Yeah. So that's that's a massive positive. But by the same token, there's probably like a lot of the people that I haven't worked with who would hate it. So, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, one of them really. So I, given how early we are in sort of the the stages of cricket and analytics. What do you think the, the limitations are to analysing cricket at the moment? Is it sort of um, a case of building up that confidence in it? Or um, do you think perhaps... So you mentioned, um, for example, earlier, um, how people are still hung up on averages, which seems a really reductionist um, way of looking at, at batting. And a lot of people still seem quite obsessed with it. Is, is there sort of a, a dinosaur element, element to things that's um, holding things back? Yeah, I think in some cases that's probably probably the situation. So, so for example, if you look at like a lot of the coaches now, even in county cricket, there weren't not all of them, or, or even like a really high percentage of them, will have played T as a player. So it's quite 
sort of difficult to to know what like for example good benchmarks are in a in a in a format that you haven't actually played before and even if you have played it in say the early years say you've got coaches like maybe like late 40s or something like that you have played it in like the early years the format has evolved so much we sort of talked earlier a little bit about like the the advent of like much faster scoring in the last few years for example well alistair cook playing in 2020s (laughs) well i've just looked up chris silverwood and he did play t20s but he only played 20 t20s so that had been right at the beginning of the of the thing so that's barely a full season so that that gives you an idea of 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 the point you're making there yeah so i think that as as sort of the coaching pool sort of evolves over time you're going to get obviously the older guys retiring and the younger guys um coming in and who have probably played a lot more of it i know a few players like now who who, who tell me that they want to go into coaching when they're older and, and and obviously things will probably change a lot in that respect you know to be honest with you i'm sure you guys probably agree like younger people tend to be like more embracing of technology and data and stuff like that growing up with it a lot more than the older people i mean one of the stories i read about like data in football the integration of data in football they talked about michael edwards he's the um one of the, the head guys in recruitment at liverpool and and he was working at portsmouth with harry redknapp and he gave him like a, a cd of like like data and stuff like that and harry redknapp signed him up and said um I can't get this to work. What's, what's going on? It turns out that Harry Redknapp appeared in CD player. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, like, I haven't really, I haven't seen any instances of that, but I can get it as well at the same time. You know, when you've got like perhaps some coaches who struggle with WhatsApp, it's very difficult to sort of sell them like a detailed analytics on yeah. the phone. Yeah, <laughs> no, definitely. Um, I, one of the other areas that I, I've heard other people. Uh, mention when it comes to how analytics could develop in cricket and by other people here I mean quite specifically Jared Kimber um, is that there isn't really much data sharing or sharing of formulas and so on within cricket so we we, we talked kind of we alluded to weighted averages earlier in 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 the conversation and, and we know that England use weighted averages to assess batsmen and bowlers, but we don't know how their formula works because they don't want to share that, which is understandable because they're yeah. a, I think it's developed by Crickviz and they're a commercial body and it's they're not really in it um, to develop the the wider fans' uh, knowledge or, or or to get that peer point of view. Mm. Um, my I guess my question is is do you think that's a necessary step? for a, a, a big, if, if we're at three at the moment, to get us to seven or eight, do you think that data sharing um, will, will have to take place or or will it happen in another way? That's a really good question. Um, yeah, I think that three can get to probably seven or eight just by teams embracing it a lot more and, and letting analysts have much more of a significant voice. I mean, most teams don't probably even have a recruitment analyst, let alone you know, specific to that field, as opposed to like a general video analyst or something like that. So I think that there's probably scope to to get higher up in that scale just just by being used more and having more of a voice. But I take your point, and maybe to get like to like a ten where like there's like maximum market efficiency and stuff like that, maybe that that would be the case. But then by the same token, I mean it's a tough one because. I think that you can certainly work out what strategies certain analysts are using just purely on the players that they recruit. So you wouldn't necessarily need them to like 
voluntarily share information to actually trying to work out where they're going with their selections and stuff like that. So if you've got a reasonably trained eye, you can probably do quite a lot of that working out just off your own back. And, and so the problem is for me, like I've talked about this with other people before and sharing stuff just can't happen because if, as soon as I share stuff, then I lose commercial value. Yeah. So, and, and unfortunately, I mean, being blunt and honest, um, I didn't get into cricket analytics to to help the learning curve of other people. <laughs> I can't do it. I can build a business. So, so yeah, um, it's really difficult. And I mean, I mean, I used to do like so much free content online and stuff. And then I got kind of told by a few people that teams were basically using it as opposed to hiring me. So it was kind of, okay, well, I kind of need to stop this. Yes. Yeah. I think, I think in an interview I heard with Jared, that's more or less what happened to him as well. Mm. Yeah. yeah, no, makes sense. Yeah. It's, it's, why, it's why Sky aren't employing me at the moment. We just give away, <laughs> give away this too readily. Yeah, 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 yeah. So exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Jack, I think we kind of covered the, I mean, the Hawkeye question. But I mean, um, when it comes, I'd, sorry, I'm just going to redo that. Um, analytics is kind of a good thing for cricket, and we kind of talked around there around if it happens in an unequal way, then there could be kind of kind of disadvantages and advantages. England kind of have access to all of the Hawkeye information, we believe. Um, surely that creates more inequality at the top of the game when actually what's been asked for by kind of the other test playing na- nations is kind of more extrable stakes mm-hmm. in the game. No, that's a really good point, actually. I think that there's so much relevance to that. But the, the, the problem is, I think, that I don't necessarily see England as a particularly data-driven team in terms of their selection and strategies. So certainly from a, a T20 perspective, I would challenge a few of the bowlers uh, who are being picked sometimes as well. And certainly some of the batsmen as in test cricket as well, and some just some of, some of the general decisions full stop. So I have this kind of perception where England use data when it suits them and it hunches when it suits them. Uh, yeah, so they're using their analytics to back up what whoever the man at the top thinks is, uh, yeah. or to back up that opinion rather than to actually challenge anything. Hunches as well. Mm. So to, to give you some examples, I mean, someone like Zach Crawley, I think he's got really strong long-term potential, but whether you can pick a guy averaging a 35 and div one and say that's that we need to bed him into tests immediately is, is a different argument completely. Uh, and mm. yeah. And so that's one example. There are others as well. Um, so I think hunches are sometimes used and very, very rarely in the last 20 years has a player improved their average from county championship in, in test cricket as a batsman. So that's got to be a benchmark, no matter what. And and if you look at, like, say, like a ballpark figure, if you want to average 40 in test cricket, you probably have to average like 50 in diff one. So picking a young guy on who's averaging 35, yeah, he's young and he's really got massive potential to improve. It, it's and, and not necessarily batting him in the role that he would bat for his county is not giving a player the best chances of long-term success, in my view. It seems to be something that England do quite a lot as well, picking players yeah. and batting them not where they bat. I mean, are there is there data to, to back up how important it is to be batting in a familiar position? Well, 
I mean, there's probably stuff for each individual player. Each player will probably have their own traits. But yeah, 100% agree. But Ollie Pope was another good example as well. I think when he made his England debut at batting four, he'd never batted in in the sort of first 20 mm. overs for Surrey. And, and England's number one. Yeah, he's batting for So yeah, uh, that's 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 uh, one thing. I mean, I kind of equate it to like England calling up a striker for the national team in football because he scored like 25 goals in the Premier League and going, oh, sorry, mate, we've got Harry Kane and someone else already, so we'll stick him in the midfield. <laughs> <laughs> it just, uh, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't really work. Like, you've got... I'm, I'm thinking got... Gerald and Lampard here, though, and Skulls. Yeah, exactly. Three into two doesn't go. Was it me that said two out, two out of three and bad and maybe they should have just <laughs> taken that approach. <laughs> yeah. But going back to what you yeah, earlier about like the sort of fairness in terms of like the access to data and stuff like that i think that there's massive scope for the smaller countries to to get more heavily involved with this because i don't see a lot of the big countries using it to its maximum potential so in fact you would say that it's got the potential to be like much more than the marginal gain for a a smaller country uh than their current strategies for example which often quite haphazard in my Mm, that's quite an interesting take mm-hmm. on that, actually. I, I hadn't really considered that. I just sort of looked at it from the point of view of how England, England, Australia, and India will throw as much money as that as possible and and find the gain. And um, Ireland won't have money for an analyst. But yeah, I guess if you if you um, if you spend what what's a good analyst cost versus um, paying for a new cricket well, facility? Yeah. For example, for me, if I was to work for like a, a smaller country, for example. I would just do everything pretty much remotely in terms of like the selection and, and strategy dynamics and stuff. So, yeah, you know, it wouldn't cost like absolute fortunes to do like a part-time remote role. So I think, that, mm. and, 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 and that's something that I think a lot of counties have fallen down on as well, is that like you could probably get like a reasonably like a half-decent analyst to work part-time remotely for you for like the same value as it costs to release one more player every year. Like it, it's not, mm-hmm. it wouldn't doesn't necessarily need to cost you that much money. And if you look at like a player who's released, who often you can identify in advance as being not good enough or not having the potential to be good enough as well. Um, the benefit of having that one extra player in a squad is like extremely marginal, but the benefit benefit of having like a recruitment and strategy analyst is like massive potentially, in my view. Mm-hmm. So 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 that's it. It doesn't need to cost the earth necessarily. Yeah. No, no. I, I think in in bigger, it, it was. Well, I'm thinking more about American sports here, but almost yeah. all of them will have a big uh, an, an analytics department that yeah, will focus yeah, yeah. largely on on recruitment, um, because <laughs> because sort of as you say, the 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 cost of that could save you millions, yeah. like tens of millions over over a year if you by, by um, trading for the wrong player or, or giving someone. No, and you can see that with football as well. Mm. Like you know, you can. It's easy to blow like thirty million on a mediocre player when you haven't done enough research and stuff like that. But yeah. Yeah, don't worry, I'm a, I'm a Spurs fan, so I know all about that. <laughs> Join a club, so am I. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still, yeah, still looking forward to see if we can get the ROI at Tangy and Dombele. Right? <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned county cricket there because I think um, there's going to be massive shake-up to how the counties are going to operate in the next kind of couple of years. Um, so it's one of those things of going how are they going to reshape those kind of organisations? Because the money pressures because of coronavirus, I mean, they make barely any money anyway. So actually 
using data analytics to improve that could well be the next kind of step? Yeah, I mean, in, in theory, you, you would say that that's logical. Unfortunately, I, I wouldn't always say that behaviour of a lot of the counties is very logical. So, um, and, and like, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how, how some counties approach the you know the next year or two whether they they go like the tighter squads with higher higher proven quality or whether they mm. make some sort of uh you know more bolder decisions to get rid of some of the higher earners and and, and there's there's you know scope to have a couple of different approaches and yeah i've got my my own views about how i would approach that but yeah uh i think that there's a massive scope for it in county cricket 100 percent yeah, so I mean, assuming we do get that sort of data revolution and we and we get cricket from its three out of ten up to a, a seven or eight, what what do you think the biggest changes are, are going to be that we'll see? Okay, so strategy recruitment analysts at all franchises would be a, a real start and real specialists in terms of of, of what they do. Um, that that would be massive, and the fact that and and they effectively should be the the coach's right hand man, basically. You know, like they. They, they should have a direct influence on on decision making, and you know, coach can then come to that that guy and say, you know, what what's your view on this player? Should we go for the, him over him and stuff like that? And and the coaches a lot of the time probably need to have a little bit more faith in what these guys are saying with regards to data and stuff like that. I think that that it's a lot of it's done on hunches at the moment around the world, and who knows who, and and even sometimes like connections with certain agents and stuff like that, and and. The whole industry, I think, needs to be like much more professionalised for sure. How do you think that yeah. might feed through into sort of playing styles? Do you reckon that that'll have an impact on on how people actually play the game? Yeah, I do. So, so for example, a lot of people now have this like in T Twenty like this mantra where it's like spin to win. So they think that if you bowl like a load of overs of spin, like fifty percent, sixty percent overs of spin, then that's like well guaranteed, like almost a guarantee to like do well. Oh. Um, and yeah, they kind of like have a valid point in that spin tends to average ballpark like one run and over less than pace. But what it doesn't take into account is the fact that then batters will potentially adapt their game more to to face spinners and to be better against spin, be more proactive against spin in terms of like boundary hitting and stuff like that. So there's always this like evolving cycle of of game theory, if you like. Whereas like where an alert player would then look to try and improve, and then you look at the the knock-on effect in like auctions and stuff like that as well. So people will pay more for batsmen who are good against spin when spins bowled more and stuff like that as well. So, yeah, and and also the fact that if you're bowling a lot more spin and there's less talented spinners in the playing pool as well. So you can't necessarily have high quality of spinners across like all the teams when everyone's picking like three plus spinners in every match as well. So there's there's always that that potential to adapt different decisions and more. Yeah, you know, people say, well, bowling spin is like a you know positive expectation strategy right now, and yeah, it probably is. In at this current point, if you were to bowl say three spinners or, or two spinners plus a batsman who's quite capable of bowling spin as well and exploit matchups, you probably will do really well. But by the same token, would if if the game is efficient in ten years' time, will that still be the case? Probably not. I love it. Final question from me. Um, one of the things you seem to specialise in is trying to predict the performance of a player in kind of certain, mm -hmm. a certain situation or kind of project what their performance may be over their career. Um, these are quite advanced concepts to kind of compare to deal with. Um, yeah. How do you go about this? And uh, kind of have you, been, have you seen any successes in this area to date? 
Yes, so I have. Yeah, it's an interesting one. So, so what I I tend to do is I look at like the historical rate of improvement or decline of a player based on like age movements, if you like, and then you can a- apply that to current players and see where uh, where they might be in the f- in the future. So at the moment in like T twenty, especially like the last few years, where scoring has become really really high, um, at the moment probably success for a bowler would be not necessarily making their economy rate worse. So with economy rates generally rising, if you're stagnant, that's a good thing, right? Whereas with a batsman, if you're stagnant, that's a really bad thing in a, in a rising market, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, what I, what I tend to, to, to find is like peak age is generally between like 28, 29, 30. So, um, and teams can then take from that some, some, they can imply some decisions from that. So for example, in the IPL, what I did is looked at different age brackets and I found that like 26 to 30 year olds were paid less as a group than 31 to 34 year olds, but they had a higher appearance percentage. So that Mm. would suggest that 31 to 34 year olds are pretty bad value in the market in general. Whereas 35 plus year olds performed well, but that's because they were like previous like world class elite players. So Shane Watson then. <laughs> well, he's, he's, he's played, played very, very well for um, CSK in recent years. But there's plenty of other, like, you know, Dhoni, uh, Harbison, mm. seeing guys like that fitted into that bracket as well. So, mm-hmm. so it's kind of like the previous greats, if you like, had done, had done. Yeah, they had such a big peak to fall away from that they were still good when they were like 35 plus. But players who um, had less of a peak to decline from really struggled in that sort of 31 to 34 age bracket. And what I kind of concluded from that was that uh, IPL teams were sort of had, they they tended to retain players for one expen- expensive retention too many, if that makes sense. So they should maybe look to either get rid of a player around that sort of 29, 30 years old mark or pay them less. But they didn't. Mm-hmm. still gave them like big contracts and then their performance levels tailed off. There, there is also the thing, though, with, with that, that it's not just cricket-related. Mm-hmm. A, lot, a lot of us will sit there and be like, well, from the purest point of view, you want to put the best cricketers out and win that game of cricket. Yeah. In the IPL, it's also kind of that rock and roll, showbiz, theatre, mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. So the actual the marketing side of things, actually, why wouldn't you pick a massive name and pay them that extra premium if you're going to build the name of the Rajasthan Royals even further? So yeah. there is that element to it. Yeah, it's a very good point. And controversial I would probably say that it shows like the immaturity of the, the market in that in that situation because my view is that if you build a winning team then that automatically becomes famous if you're if you're winning like 50% of IPLs over a decade you're going to be the biggest team in that competition <laughs> no matter who's playing for you and the the, the players who have succeeded for you whether they were they started off as household names or not would be household names by the end of it yeah. uh, and um, I mean, you look at like, say, soccer, it's like a much more kind of evolved and developed industry. And I mean, there's probably a couple of examples of it, but how many how many teams would really sign a player for a commercial reason? I'm not hunting of that many. Unless they're in China or the USA. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. It's, 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 
Someone needs to tell RCB that. <laughs> they could improve. Yeah, well, it's an interesting one to talk about RCB. I wrote about that in my book. So I, I can't remember 100% if it's the right amount, but I'm pretty sure it is. Um, I think they pay Coley and Davilius 35% of their playing budget alone. Yeah, I think I've read that as well. I think. Yeah. yeah. And it makes so, it very so, hard to get five good bowlers, which yeah, is what you need to compete in the IPL. It's, yeah, um, well, that's the obvious implication from that, isn't it? That they're outbid when it comes to like premium bowlers and stuff like that, 100%. Yeah. So, so my advice to them would be you either, you either pay them less or you pick one out of two and make that choice. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think I've got one last question, and then, and yeah. then we'll probably wrap up. Is um, Shane Warne today said mm. that if he could, he would uh, pick up uh, MS Stoney for his hundred team? Is that a good decision from an analytics point of view, or is that a romance from uh, Shane? That's a really good question, and yeah, oh wow, cool. What, 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 what way to finish? Um, yeah, so so Dhoni has this like really strange dynamic in terms of like, his playing ability, where he's he tends to start off quite slowly and, and, and show like a, a weakness against spin, but from a strike rate perspective, I'm talking. But he has this incredible acceleration that, that he, he's capable of doing, which not that many people can accelerate to quite a dramatic extent. And also he's one of the very, very few players who, who hit more sixes than they do fours. So that, that the extra two runs per boundary is, or say, what the extra one run per boundary, if you say look at the kind of 50-50 split or just over 50-50 split, is 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 very, very useful as well at the back end. Um, I have a feeling as well that Warren's been quite smart there with what he says regarding um, his kind of experience and knowledge and stuff and taking his franchise forward as well, I think would be mm-hmm. would be one of the reasons why he would... He would, uh, would, uh, would, uh, you know, Indian players aren't allowed to play in these overseas leagues. So if, if for example, London Spirit with Shane Warne got got MS Dhoni, then obviously that's got quite a big commercial application as well. You would, you would think. So, so yeah, you can understand his logic with it completely. Whether it's actually ever going to come to fruition is another matter entirely. Yeah. All right. I think that's everything from us then. Um... Thank you for joining us, Dan. Um, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Uh, really good to chat. Thanks so much. Go, DJ! Go, DJ! DJ Bravo! And Tony is looking in terrific touch. Chennai Super Kings. Chennai Super Kings. Chennai Super Kings. Chennai Super Kings. So you mentioned it just at the end of the interview there with um, Shane Warne coming out and saying that MS Dhoni would be great to have to play in the uh, the hundreds, and he definitely would be. I mean, ultimately, Dhoni has been one of the superstars of cricket, if not the superstar of modern day cricket since we've started watching it, I suppose. He's yeah. been around for that long, really, isn't he? I have a feeling, I, I, I was reading some of the uh, Dhoni obituaries, uh, if you like, um, this, <laughs> <laughs> this afternoon. I have a feeling that Dhoni's first International 100 um, came during or around the same time as England's famous series against uh, Australia in 2005. Um, which yeah gives you an indication of one the lifespan of of Dhoni um, in, in cricketing terms <laughs> and hopefully in real life you know um, uh, but two 
Two, yeah, like Ross, as you say, I mean, like what what an impact he he uh, has had over over that time as well. He's, he's played, well, I think he's played about four hundred ODIs, ninety odd Test matches, and ninety odd T um, Twenties, and he's shown his class across all the formats. And as we've seen with all kinds of different players, that's a really hard thing to demonstrate. Um, it's also being the captain of cricket mad nation that is India comes with a whole different level of pressure. Um, and I think ultimately he's, he's handled it pretty remarkably. Um, what I want to know though, is he, is he back off to play super army soldiers? So that's what he's going to do. Uh, I understand that he's going to play at least one more IPL and the owner of uh, CSK said they'd have him back after 2021 if he wanted to carry on playing as well, at which point he'd be 41. So, um, yeah, you like to say he's either off to do Army Soldiers or he's going to go for the Darren C- Stevens um, professional cricket uh, age record. Um, yeah. We'll see. We'll see what happens over the next five years. Um, I- I've got a quick question for you on, on the topic of Dhoni. Ob- obviously, we're not Indian, so we get to see this from afar uh, and-, and maybe have a, a less uh, emotional take on things. Do you-, do you reckon he's the greatest Indian captain of all time? I think if you look at the World Cups that he's won and look at the way in which he won them, I think it's probably a fair assessment. Over Ganguly? Well, I, I just I just think that the guy... I mean, again, I didn't watch that much cricket when Ganguly was playing, hmm. to be perfectly honest. And actually, when I've seen Dhoni play, he also... He, the game in which he um, promoted himself when they'd had a batting collapse, but put himself up at five from number six to number seven and then came in and won them the game. Yeah, to me that is just that is just peak level captaincy, pure leadership, and absolutely nailing um, your technique and temperament in in the highest pressure situation you could possibly get to. Max, what, what do you think about that? You'd be very quiet. Do you hate Dhoni? No, I I, I love Dhoni. I think um, my favourite thing about Dhoni is that you have to be a special player to wear completely different batting pads to everyone else <laughs> and pull it off. And boy, does he do it. I mean, on the captaincy side of things, I, he's being the first captain and I assume currently only captain to um, win all of the uh, ICC Limited Overs trophies is quite an achievement um, and testament really to his ability as captain of India. So I think it wouldn't be outrageous to suggest that he is the greatest captain Okay, um, I think that's uh, enough eulogising. It's been quite a long show, so we'll leave it there. Obviously, it is a bit. It is a shame when a, a great of the game like Dhoni uh, does call it a day. Um, but we wish him well in his next venture. Hopefully, we'll see him at the London Spirit, uh, <laughs> ordered around by Shane Warne next summer. <laughs> um, this has well, been. I think actually that could be good for cricket in general. From perfectly honest, I, th- I think if he ends up coming to play in in that world and the BCCI start opening up. Kind of yeah, Indian yeah. players to some of the others. It'll be amazing. Yeah. Um, this has been the Cricket Podcast. Where can you find us, Max? You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at the Cricket Pod. You can find us on Stitcher, on Apple Podcasts, on Acast, and all other excellent podcast providers. Yep. Um, leave us a review, subscribe, tell a friend, etc. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Jack. Goodbye. See you later. Bye. <laughs>